Good morning, everyone. That's oh, good to see you guys. Um, how many of you slept in a little bit, enjoyed that extra hour? Um, just so you know, my wife tagged me in it. You guys got an extra hour of sleep, so I get an extra hour to preach. Yeah. Junior church, four years old through five years old through fourth grade, you are dismissed to walk. Right up here, they'll meet you, five years old through fifth grade. I messed it up, yep. I dropped my pocket. I'll pick it up later. How many here forgot to change their clock? Did anybody? Okay. That's why Jim was here for Sunday school. He forgot to change his clock, so he was here. He forgot that we actually met that early. I'm just teasing. Jim's awesome. Okay. So I read this. I was reading stories, trying to find a good joke or something about people who missed or overslept for church. And this guy, this one was pretty funny, I thought. Um, this church organist overslept on Easter morning. She said the service was scheduled for 6.30 for an early morning. And at 6.31, the minister called to see if I was coming. Since I lived near the church, I was at the organ within, uh, by 6.45. So she was there in 14 minutes. A year later, on Easter morning, my phone rang at 5.45. When it answered, the minister said, Christ is risen, and you better have been risen too. <laughs> he was making sure she didn't sleep through that one. That was always just a funny joke. Um, so today we come to a very perplexing, I think, event with Jesus. We've been looking through the life of Jesus so that we can grow our faith to build upon the foundation that he has. Today we come to Matthew chapter 9, verses 13 and 15. In the first part of this chapter, Matthew calls Levi. We looked at that another time earlier. And Jesus calls Levi, which is his Jewish name. His Greek name is Matthew. Um, he worked as a tax collector for the Roman government. This occupation labeled him as an outcast among his own people. Then Jesus came and history changed drastically for Matthew. In Matthew 9, 9, here's where this one changing moment was for Matthew. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. From that moment, life changed for Matthew. He had a new vocation. He had new friends, a completely new purpose for his life. He eventually wrote the book of the Gospel of Matthew. He records that a bunch of other tax collectors in this um, scripture come together for a party because he's like, I want to introduce other people to Jesus. And Jesus is sitting at this home of a known tax collector surrounded by a bunch of notorious tax collectors and other sinners. And who would show up to harass him but the religious elite, the Pharisees. As soon as they get the chance, they wind to Jesus and his disciples. Why is your leader partying, partying with these sinners? Now, when you read the background of this, we have to realize that these religious leaders would never go into the home of a tax collector. So what were they doing? They were peering through the windows. They were snooping. They were peeping toms in the sense of trying to find something against Jesus. Hanging around the outside, observing this party from a safe, religiously pure distance. 
And then they send their complaint that Jesus is doing that. And Jesus says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. When Jesus says that, he's quoting from Hosea chapter 6, Hosea 6, 6, where God declares, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Then Jesus follows that saying in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Pharisees would have known this scripture very well, but they didn't get it. Have you ever been somewhere and somebody was trying to explain something and that other person, somebody listening just didn't get it? Usually it's when you tell a joke to a blonde and they just don't get it. Hey, (laughs) oh, oh, one husband just went like this to his wife, but I'm not pointing out that that was Merle. (laughs) You're not a blonde. No, no, (laughs) that, oh, you can't understand her. Okay, that, you could have got in so much trouble and it would have been my fault. Pharisees knew this. They cared nothing, though, about getting that point. All they cared about was keeping themselves ceremonially clean and untainted by this lowly scum. That's what they wanted. They were looking at themselves. How do I make myself pure? How do I make myself righteous and stay away from these evil, bad people? They were like people who didn't go near a sick person because they're afraid they might catch the disease. Well, we experienced a lot of that during the the whole 2020 um, COVID stuff. Um, I'm going to just kind of reveal something. So you were supposed to, whenever you were around somebody, what would happen and and they had COVID, somebody would call it in and then somebody from the CDC or whatever would start calling you. And I rode in a car with somebody who had COVID, we didn't know they had COVID, for about, yeah, you know who it is, for about 40 minutes in the car right next to him. He called me the next day, said, I have COVID and it's pretty bad. I said, don't you dare tell anybody I'm in the car. I have a funeral this weekend. I didn't get sick. Nobody else got sick from me. I stayed a little bit of a distance. But when you know someone's sick, don't you kind of want to, It was different back in the 80s when kids had chicken pox. What did we do? You'd throw them all together in one room. Make sure you hug and wrestle. Because you wanted to get it over with. But when it was the flu or measles or things like that, it was like, stay away from them. That's what the religious leaders are like. These sinners, you've got to stay away. They're the plague. They would be like that. They don't want to go near them. And religious people today can fall into the same trap. If we focus so much on keeping the church pure, trying to keep ourselves righteous, and then when we do that, we end up looking down on the ones we should lift up. Some churches work hard to keep the scum, the evildoers, out, while God's whole desire is to reach out to them. um, Augustine Burroughs said concerning himself, he said this, I myself am made entirely of flaws stitched together with good intentions. And I thought, wow, that's a very accurate statement about 
me. The emphasis of the religious leaders at this point was making yourself acceptable by the strict adherence to the laws. And Jesus comes in and he changes it. It's a whole new paradigm. And in this new covenant, God extended grace to even the worst sinners. That's how it all changed. Instead of you becoming a good and godly and righteous person, God gives you grace even to the worst sinners. The greater the sin, the greater the application of grace. Matthew knew what it meant to have a completely new life. He was a tax collector. People hated him. And then God came and gave him a brand new life. I think it's significant that the first teaching this new follower, Matthew, records to tell us that Jesus came to make all things new. So let's get to our main text. That was just the opening. I told you I get an extra hour. No, I won't do that long. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do you and the Pharisees, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. Right there, I think John's disciples went, What? Okay, why aren't you fasting like we fast? Oh, well, nobody fasts when we're having a wedding. You're not having, what, what are you talking about? This is one of those perplexing things. And when I first planned this sermon and was going through it, I was like, we're going to be talking about fasting. And then as I was breaking this, this isn't about fasting. Now, it's doubtful that the disciples of John the Baptist attended the Matthew party. Uh, John was a nomad. They lived out on the outskirts eating bugs and honey. They lived a harsh life dedicated to fasting and prayer, and they probably avoided these type of Matthew parties altogether. It was a rough time for them, and at this point in Matthew 9, John the Baptist is actually in jail. And now they're sad, they're a little confused, and maybe they're jealous of Jesus' success in ministry. And they come up and ask this question. Why would they ask this question? Why aren't you fasting is what they're saying. Well, is fasted needing anymore? Is that, could that be what they're thinking? Some of you might be thinking that Jesus is condemning fasting here, but that is not at all what he is doing. In fact, fasting is something Jesus suggests and approves of in various other spots in scriptures. Uh, the problem here is John's disciples and the Pharisees were not what, why they were fasting, or not that they were fasting, but why were they fasting? Here, here's the state. A lot of Jews would fast every Tuesday and Thursday, and then yearly on the Day of Atonement, with the purpose of praying for the Messiah to come and save them. So every Tuesday and every Thursday, they would fast, praying that the Messiah would come. Now, remember, leave this statement up here. Every Tuesday and every Thursday, and then they come to Jesus. Why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your people fasting? And Jesus says, you don't fast when the bridegroom is here, when the Messiah is here. That's an ironic statement that they're asking him question. They were fasting for the Messiah to come, and here he is himself. They're complaining to him about the reason why they're fasting. Jesus' response tries to clue them into the irony of their statements. 
Um, it's using language from the Old Testament, mainly in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where they would also uh, often write about the coming Messiah. They would call him the groom, the bridegroom, and we are the people coming to celebrate. And so it was prophesied that the Messiah would be killed and beaten, and thus what Jesus meant when he said, someday the groom will be taken away. Then you can fast, because then you're going to be waiting for the second coming. But at this moment, why fast? I am here. And the way he said this, the way he said this, the way it's even recorded in Matthew, really points to something that John the Baptist actually said in John 3. John said this, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friends who attend the bridegroom await and listen for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He, talking about Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. John says, Jesus is the bridegroom. The, the disciples come and say, why aren't you fasting like we do? And he said, you don't fast when you're with the bridegroom. Remember what John said. We need to remember it. How many of you ever heard people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He just did. He just said, I am that bridegroom. And Jesus knew his answer would not just comfort the friends, but it was also reinforcing them that Jesus came to make all things new. Not some things, not partial, but all things. Weddings can be a great event. They can be. They can be filled with a lot of drama and over expenses and all that stuff. But the point of the wedding is a wonderful thing where two single things come and make something brand new. It's a new relationship. And Jesus starts this section here with a wedding representing a new relationship because Jesus came to give us that. In a wedding, both the bridegroom and the bride, they choose each other. You ever had a, a groom who was so nervous? I've done several weddings, and he's like, what if she doesn't say I do when we're up there? If you're doubting that, we need to back the date off, okay, and get a little counseling going. Okay, you want to make sure that it's, it's a sure thing when that's up there. It's done. I knew my wife would say I do. I mean, why wouldn't she? <laughs> but when a bride and a groom... They choose each other. And that makes it so much better. They make promises to each other. They bing, begin this new life built upon mutual love and promises to each other. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. That's the same way new life with him. He has already chosen you. He's made vows of promises to each one of us. The question is, have you chosen him? He's chosen you. Will you return his vows? Will you accept that new relationship with God? If you will say yes to Jesus, you'll experience a whole new relationship with God, a relationship based on love, not law. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good he loves you. Then there's two more teachings which seem very weird right after this uh, wedding talk. Verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Well, nobody patches up an old cloth with new cloth. 
Do you see how Jesus sometimes is confusing? But that's because we're thinking of it in today's terms, okay? Many people think he's just talking about patching some article of clothing, but he's not. Jesus is really proclaiming that he's going to give out new clothing. He's not into patchworking your old life. He's into giving a new clothing. How many of you have patches on your clothes? Some people do. Now, when I was in high school, um, I had these ripped jeans because they were cool, right? This was back in the, well, it wasn't high school, it was junior high, so it was uh, 88, 87, 88. And my mom did not want me going to church camp with those raggedy pants. I'm like, mom, they're cool. The girls will like them. So when I unpacked them, that was back when mom packed things, they had these sewn on patches over the knees that the fabric, it looked like jeans, but it didn't match the right color of the jean, and it had paint splots like it was, somebody just was artistic and threw paint on it. I'm like, I'm not wearing these, but they were the only jeans I had. Do you know what happened that week? I ripped those suckers off. And what happened to my rips? My jeans got cooler. <laughs> you, don't, you don't patch new stuff because what happens if you take a brand new cloth that hasn't gone through the wash, it hasn't been pre-shrunk, and then you put it on there. When it does wash, it pulls at the tears and it makes that garment with a bigger hole. If we rip now, that's how it is back then. If we rip something now, we just go out and get a new one or order it from Amazon. In Jesus' time, just about everybody knew how to patch clothing. Most of them had to find a way to make their clothing last for years. They only had one coat. They only really had about two, maybe three outfits. Can you imagine that, ladies? Three outfits total. Yeah. The guys are like, I could live with that. That's fine, but not the ladies. If their cloak ripped or wore out, they would have to simply sew on a new patch, and they knew they had to get the right kind of fabric, otherwise it'd make it worse. And here's the point. Jesus has no interest of patching up your life. He doesn't want to patch up your sinful, worn out, ripped up old sinful life. He's not into that. He doesn't want to patch it up. He wants to give you something brand new. He wants to give you a life that is vibrant. Why is it that all at the end of summer, parents take their kids clothes shopping? So they can start school with what? Brand new clothes. We want you to look your best so the teachers don't judge you. They want you to be looking better. Maybe not speaking better, but they want you to look better. And what happens through the year? The clothes fade and our real attitudes come out. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you something so much better. Not a patch, not a brand new clothing here, but it's going to be something internally, a new life to make you new, something greater. How many of you ever watched that show, um, What Not to Wear? I am not surprised I did not see a single guy's hand go up. I saw a few ladies. I read a little thing of this. I have never watched it. I, okay. Don't, uh, I have not watched it. Okay, so I read up to, uh, on it. This show would take a person, pair them with some sort of stylist. They'd give that person a bunch of money to go buy a whole new wardrobe. 
Before they could get their new clothes, though, they did something. Uh, They made that person throw out all their old clothes. Why would they do that? No turning back. You got to get rid of them. Do you know, husbands, you're missing some shirts. There's some of your shirts you're missing. You know why? Your wife threw them out. She don't want you going back to that. She don't want you looking like that anymore. It's true. Jesus is saying the same thing. I don't want you looking like that world. I don't want you looking like that sin. I don't want you. I am giving you something brand new. Get rid of that so you can have a brand new clothing, a new wardrobe, not just patches of old stuff to cleanse our hearts and outfit us with a new way of life. He came to make things new. Now let's pair the next verse with 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away in the garment from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Okay, what about fasting? Now we're talking about a wedding, clothing, and now getting drunk. I mean, that's what most people are going to think. What's this wineskin stuff? What are we talking Okay, let me say something. Jesus is not endorsing getting drunk here, but he's trying to illustrate something with what this wine does. Wine was a very common drink back then because they didn't have Avion water. They didn't have Walmart because you know where you got your drinking water? The same place you went and bathed all your animals and got rid of the sewage for the town and it was not good water. So they had this wine with the fermentation process that would kill the germs and they often put grape juice that was specially treated in leak resistant goat skins bladders or stomachs and this new wine fermented you know what it would do it would stretch out that that bladder or that um, stomach and it would stretch it out and it would hold it all now once the wine skin was used and it was stretched out like that the skin would become brittle and dry with age. And if you put new wine in there for it to ferment, as soon as it started fermenting, it would break the skin and you would lose everything. You'd lose your little wine bag and then you would lose your wine. You'd have this big explosion of what it would do. Jesus is saying, take that analogy and I'm going to show you something new. I'm going to give you something new and refreshing. I'm going to pour my life into you. And if it's poured into the same old life, the same life, remember I've already changed your clothes, your wardrobe. But if you go and put all that back in, you cannot contain it. My life is not going to do it if you keep going to the old life. The old way of the law cannot contain the new way of grace. And that's what he's saying. The law can't get you to heaven. The law, just fulfilling all the laws, is not going to get you to heaven because you can't do it. What happens when, guys, I want you to be real honest. If you see a sign that says, do not touch wet paint, what do you do? You can't even follow one statement. You, you, Rod's like, i got to make sure it's real. Don't touch it. Let's let's make it a little personal. Your wife has made some stuff and says, that's for the guests. Don't touch it. Rod's statement is true. I got to test it. 
make sure it's safe. If we can't follow those laws, what kind of laws do we think we can follow on God's on when he's saying, to be holy, don't touch this sin? And we fail. And so what Jesus is saying, this law is not going to save you, but the new grace is. And so you need to get rid of the old wineskins, the old way you live, and let me give you something new so I can pour my life into it. Everything about Jesus and his teachings were brand new. We like comfort and control and tradition, and Jesus came and he shattered a lot of that. The kingdom he preached was going to be different in every aspect. Jesus came to move us from law to grace, from wearisome efforts of flawless obedience to justification by faith in him. From repeated animal sacrifices to one all-sufficient sacrifice of him. From a simple human priest to a sinless high priest. From the Ten Commandments to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. From the sign of circumcision to the sign of baptism. From emphasis on sin to the emphasis on the Savior. From outer conformity to inner conviction. From conditional covenant to an everlasting covenant. Jesus came and he took all the old, he finished it, and he says, now don't go live there, live here. And let the life I pour into you ferment and grow and become ever more increasing within you. Jesus offers the illustration of a wedding to show he offers a new relationship with God, one that is based entirely on his love. He gave the word picture of the new clothes to show that he can do so much more than just patch up your old life, your old tattered life. He'll cleanse your heart and give you an entire new way of living. And he gave the metaphor of the new wineskins to show that he offers a new way to live, to grow in constant connection with him as he pours his life into you. Now, in the beginning of the chapter, Matthew threw this party, and who was the party for? Sinners, tax collectors. Matthew was so impressed with Jesus and his love, at Jesus' love, that Matthew threw a party so all his friends who would be considered scum could come meet Jesus. They got to see and know the firsthand um, of this message of love that Jesus brought They partied and celebrated and lived out that new life in him. They were celebrating that. And in Jesus' followers, at that moment, you can see joy. You can see joy. We see fear and anxiety in the Pharisees and in John's disciples. They couldn't get past the rules and the way things they had always done them. And they're missing the one thing. Missing out and missing the Messiah who was right there in front of them. When it comes to the newness life that is offered to us in a relationship with Jesus, which are you living by? Are you living by that joy and excitement or is there fear because that's not how I've always done it? It's not how I pictured it. If you have a relationship with Christ, are you living with excitement and joy that is contagious and lived out in front of all to see? When you are excited for Jesus, are you enough so that people can tell? When you're going and talking to other people about church, are you like, yeah, I got to get up and go to church? 
Or are you saying, I get to get up and meet with other people and come to the presence of God? Are you excited about it? If not, why? You're supposed to be a new creation, a new masterpiece made right and given the opportunity to have a relationship with God, the creator of all things. When we jump into a relationship with Christ, we should be excited and want to share that excitement with others. When I got married, I told everybody. Nobody believed me that I got somebody to say yes. And so I had to show, yes, here it is. Here's the pictures. I want to show you everything. When I had a baby, you know what I did? Look at this. I was excited to tell everybody about all three of our kids. When we have a new life, whether relationship with Christ, new life born into us as we're a new child of God, we should be excited about that and sharing that. That's how Jesus wants us to live. Maybe you have a relationship with Christ and you're living in fear and anxiety about that newness that Christ offers. You're worried about what others may think of you or maybe you're scared about this faith thing and that means you're not in control. I just want you to know that is an okay place to be if you're struggling through that. Anyone who has had a relationship with Christ has been there at one time and maybe multiple times. It is hard to continually give God control. I'll just tell you that right here from here. It is hard to do that at times. The important thing is that we keep asking questions. How, Jesus, can I give you more? How can I let go of this? How can I put on these new clothes? How do I keep letting go of this old? And as you do that, you're going to start feeling more and more of the excitement, and you'll be able to live it out. But maybe you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. And I want you to think about this. To think about this offer that Christ gives you, a new life that is full of joy, of promise, unlike anything you can find anywhere else. Some of you have heard this before, but have always been a little scared and anxious, and I don't blame you. A new life is, in Christ is a little bit difficult, and it's hard at times. It's not always a cool thing to do. It's not always easy to profess, but it is incredibly worth it. Jesus offers a relationship with God that you cannot find anywhere else. You can't find it in church. You can only find it in him. I want to encourage you to wrestle with that, to explore with that. How do we do this? And you know what? Dustin and I, a couple of guys who we try our best. The elders, a couple of guys who just try their best. We want to walk with you through that process. You have questions, don't feel dumb. I still have questions. We can walk together through that and see how the excitement of Christ builds with each one of us. No matter where you are, Let's move from that spot to an exciting relationship with Jesus. One that is contagious and will constantly be moving. Let's stand and let's close today with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your love. I thank you that you are a God of new, that you don't take my old, worn out, sinful life and just repackage it, but you give me something from you, perfect something brand new that I don't deserve. I thank you for that, God. 
Help me to live in that newness that you've given me. In those promises and that faithfulness of grace and love that you've poured out through your son. And God, I ask that you would move mightily within this church as we're seeking to live our life in a bold and vibrant way on the foundation of you, of Jesus. And in his name we proclaim this. Amen.